Hey, Coach Arlen here. What do Walt Disney, Andrew Carnegie, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Edison, and FDR all have in common? They shared one secret that propelled them to achieve remarkable success. They each belonged to a mastermind group. If you've never experienced the power of a mastermind group, now is your opportunity. Join my business success mastermind group today. New cohorts are starting soon. To learn more, go to ib4e-coaching.com forward slash mastermind. Courage to Lead, episode 237. You're listening to the IB4E Coaching Podcast. Brought to you by IB4E Coaching, business coaching for executives, entrepreneurs, and small business professionals. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com. Hey, Coach Harlan here. Welcome back to the podcast. Hope you guys are having an exceptional week. I'm having a great week, and I'm excited to introduce you to my guest today. Please help me welcome Scott White. Scott White, the life is too short guy, is the happiest guy you will ever meet. After spending over a decade in investment banking on Wall Street, he took a chance and became an entrepreneur and business builder. Today, Scott is chairman and CEO of a public real estate company. Scott is always looking for his next challenge and has completed one Ironman triathlon and 15 marathons. Now Scott is on a mission to make the world happier, one smile at a time. With his endless energy, he motivates and inspires everyone he meets to focus on happiness, gratefulness, and positivity. Scott is married to his high school sweetheart, Jen. Together, they are two of the most passionate Rutgers sports fans in the world. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on, Harlan. Absolutely. This is cool. Um, so an Ironman triathlon and 15 marathons. So far. So far, I'm not done. And uh, when when exactly did this obsession hit? I mean, is this have you always been in in track and field? Or yeah, I mean, I ran track in high school and then casually on and off over the years. And I'd say about fifteen ish years ago, plus or minus. I I had always wanted a marathon, and about fifteen years ago, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to apply and see what happens. And I applied to the New York City Marathon, and I think I applied maybe in, I can't remember, December, January, and you don't find out until like May. Yeah, so yeah. I, I sort of trained all along. All of a sudden, I was in, and I got hooked. I did the first one, which, by the way, was was uh, a, a a setback. I talk a little bit about this in the book, <laughs> and we can get we can get there later. It's one of the topics in the book, but it inspired me to do more, and then just became addictive, and I started to do one or two a year. Wow. And a lot of them, I know you have to run other small races to get enough points to be entered into some of the big races. Is that right? Is that the way the New York marathon yeah. is? Yeah. So a lot of the big marathons, New York, Chicago, uh, Marine Corps, um, they, 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 the, the sports become so popular. They have 40, 50,000 people that run it and they get a few hundred thousand entrants that it is a lottery. So there are some like New York, we could run a certain number of smaller events to, to, to get points. There's yeah. some like Boston where the only way you can get in is to qualify. You have to run a qualifying time to, to run Boston. And I'm very grateful I have qualified and run Boston three times, which is a, nice. a special race. That's awesome. Very cool. Good stuff. All right. We've got a lot of stuff to talk about, a lot of stuff to cover. Um, but before we get started into everything, I want to take a few minutes and ask you some icebreaker questions. These are questions that I ask every one of my guests. Listeners know these are from the TV show Inside the Actor's Studio, where the host James Lipton asks these same questions of his Hollywood guests from TV, film, and stage. And I always figured if they're good enough for the Hollywood elite, they're certainly good enough for my guests. So, Scott, if you're ready, 10 questions for you. Let's see how I do. All right. Question number one, what is your favorite word? Inspire. 
What is your least favorite word? Can't. What turns you on? Uh, a challenge. What turns you off? Uh, laziness. What sound or noise do you love? Birds chirping. What sound or noise do you hate? Um, nails on a chalkboard. Let's go with that one. For lack of anything that can come to mind faster. Yep. That's a good one. All right. What is your favorite curse word? Um, well, I don't know if I'd say favorite, but unfortunately, highly overused. Uh, starts with F, ends with K, and uh, you could fill in the two letters in between. And um, sadly, it's it's become part of my vernacular. I, as you mentioned before, I grew up on Wall Street, and Wall Street is just one of those worlds where profanity has become a part of the normal day-to-day, and, and, and I have found myself when I left that world having to put up a filter and back off. But unfortunately, the F-bomb ends up in my my daily verbiage too often. It comes out every once in a while. Yep. I'm with you. All right. Um, what profession, other than your own, would you like to attempt? Uh, teaching. Teaching. Definitely teaching. Any certain subject? Uh, probably something in business. I, you know, on, on my long list of challenges and fun projects, I'd, I'd like to teach at a top 20 business school in the, in the U S. And in fact, maybe someday even become the president of a university is, is kind of in the back of my mind. Nice. Very cool. All right. What profession would you not like to do? Medicine. Can't deal with it. Can't handle it. It is my biggest weakness, a paper cut and I pass out. <laughs> All right. Final question. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Welcome. Okay. Yeah, anything sh- short of that would be concerning, I think. I guess so. Yes, absolutely. All right. Scott, we're going to take a short break. We're going to come back, talk about how you got your start, how you got to where you are now, who you work with and how you help them. Um, I know you've got a book out. We're going to talk about your book and we're going to talk about courage and leadership. All right. So listeners, we're going to talk about all of that and probably more right after this. So stick with us. Imagine having a trusted group of CEOs at your disposal. Imagine having your very own peer advisory team who could work you through the problems and questions in your business before you had to make those difficult decisions. Imagine you had a group of advisors that had your back and met for the sole purpose of making you successful in your business. What would you be able to accomplish then? Well, you don't have to imagine anymore. You can have that and more when you join my Business Success Mastermind Group. Join my Business Success Mastermind Group today. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com forward slash mastermind. And I'm back with my guest, Scott White. Scott, thanks again for taking time out of your, your busy schedule to be with us. Really appreciate your time. So you started off as a senior accountant at Pricewaterhouse, right? One of the big four consulting firms in the country. How was that? Was that a, a a goal? Something you were after? You know, how did you how did you do that, or did you just kind of find yourself in that position? Um, you know, like much of my career, it's it's opportunities became available. You know, I tell people that the careers are very much like marathons. We talked about the marathon before, and careers are like marathons, and and you can't always see what's behind the next turn. So, so my path to accounting was interesting when I, I when I applied to colleges, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I, I really it was sort of one of those you go to college, you know, this was the early 90s, you go to college, you figure it out, 
Um, I applied to a wide range of colleges. If I went through my college list, you, you would tell that I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I ended up at Rutgers. Rutgers was right by my home. I live in New Jersey. It was close. It was reasonably priced. It made sense. So I enrolled at Rutgers and I, my thought was, again, not knowing what I was going to do, I'd study political science and go to law school. Why? I couldn't tell you then. And I'm still not sure I could tell you. Um, so I, I started there, undeclared and got into political science. And then as I'm flipping through the catalog, and this is literally the catalog, you know, it's 1991, um, I see this, this program in the catalog of a, um, a five-year MBA, three years undergrad, two years graduate, you get an MBA. And I'm like, I was going to go to law school, but five-year MBA sounds kind of cool. Maybe, maybe I'll do that. Again, I, I really didn't have a plan. I, I liked school. I liked school. Um, like maybe I'll, I'll investigate that. And then I flip the page and I see another page in there that talks about an MBA with a concentration in accounting. That's a 15 month accelerated MBA, two unrelated programs. So somehow, and I still don't know how I saw this image of, well, if you're doing the three, two, and you could take the two and do it in 15 months, maybe you could put the two together and do it in like a little over four years. So I go to the Dean's office and I ask, and their head was spinning. I mean, you could almost see smoke coming out of their ears of, you know, where would you live and who would you pay and what would the bursar do? And would you be a graduate or undergrad or, oh, I don't know how we could do this. And I, I kept saying, but why not? But why not? But why not? But why not? And anyway, I did the, the program. It was a four-year program. So basically, I went three years undergrad. Summer after my junior year, I enrolled in, in business school, MBA, did 15 credits, 15 in the fall. Technically, I graduated from college. 15 credits in the spring, 15 the following summer. And about three months after when I would have otherwise graduated as an undergrad, I graduated with an MBA with a concentration in accounting. And my original plan was to just go right to law school. And having gone through that, it, it was fairly intense without much of a break. Sure. I was like, eh, you know what? I need a little bit of a break. And the program was really set up as a, as a feeder to, at the time, the big five accounting firms. You refer to the big four, but this was when PW and C were separate, Pricewaterhouse and uh, Coopers. Got it. Okay. So I interviewed with, with the five accounting firms. I think three or four of them made me offers. I was like, all right, I'll give it a shot. So I went to Pricewaterhouse and I knew from the day I got there, it was two years and out. I needed two years to become a CPA at that time. So I was like, all right, I'm doing two years and out. And I, I started in, uh, let's see, business school ended in August. I think I started right after Labor Day. And I knew that I wanted to be in law school two years later. So I didn't take any vacation when I was at Pricewaterhouse. I banked all that vacation and I convinced Pricewaterhouse to keep me on payroll for an extra two or three weeks. So I'd get that two-year gap while I enrolled in law school. And I went to law school. I finished my, my CPA. I finished my two years at Pricewaterhouse. And it was a wonderful experience. I actually will tell you that, that there were times along the journey where I, I tapped the brakes a little bit and said, you know what? This this is a pretty cool place. Like this is a, a good opportunity. Maybe I hang here for third or fourth year. Maybe, maybe I really don't need to go to law school. I don't even know why I'm going to law school. And you know, I, I went back and forth. And I think, um, as I recall, my parents were pretty influential, and I think they really wanted me to go to law school. And they're like, "Well, you could always go back to accounting. Why don't you try it out?" And that's what I did. I did just under two years of Price Waterhouse, and then I went off to law school. And the the, the marathon continued. And and it, there's been many twists and turns since. Wow. Not one to sit around. I don't sit around. I talk about that. We'll talk later about the book, but but minutes Absolutely. matter. You only have so many. You got to maximize yeah. these. Uh, make the most of them. Absolutely. 100%. Make the most of them. Uh, so you were um, uh, chief operating officer, right? EVP and president of Main Street Health Investments. 
Tell me about that. How did you get into the health side? So um, after I left Pricewaterhouse, I went, I went to law school. I graduated law school and I thought I'd be a lawyer. But partway through my legal studies, I, I summered at a law firm in New York, a firm that doesn't even exist anymore. It was called Dewey Ballantyne. And, and when I was there, I met an associate and, and they're people you meet along the journey that really have an impact on your life and your career. And, and she and I were working in the M&A group on uh, probably a weekend there in the summer. And she said to me, she's like, you know, you're a CPA, you have an MBA, you're now in law school. Like, do you really want to be a lawyer? Why? What about investment banking? And I'm like, what's investment banking? Like, you know, I had known a little bit about it, but not a lot. She introduced me to her husband who was an investment banker. And then I decided I want to be an investment banker. So I finished law school. And um, immediately after finishing law school, I took the bars for New York and New Jersey and three days after taking the bar, I started in investment banking. I was a junior entry-level investment banker at, at Citigroup, Solomon with Barney slash Citigroup, where I spent about nine years. And then I went on and continued my career on Wall Street for th four more years at Brookfield Asset Management, had a wonderful experience there. And then now I'm getting to your question of sort of how I ended up in, in healthcare real estate. When I was in investment banking, and I said this before, you meet people along your career and along your life that have a meaningful impact that 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 change the direction and trajectory of your career. I met someone that I was working with that had worked briefly on Wall Street a couple of years, decided that wasn't the right fit for him, moved home and started a company, uh, first acquiring and later building nursing homes. And for years, he had talked to me about joining him, partnering with him, growing this business. And finally, after... 13 years on Wall Street, I, I decided, you know, and if ever you're going to take the chance, this one feels kind of right. This one has the trappings. They're still early stage, but has the trappings for something meaningful that could grow. Um, and I left, I walked out of uh, Brookfield on a Friday and Monday I started with, with this new company, a developer owner of nursing homes. And from there, it, it sort of spawned. That was 10 years ago this month. And we we grew a portfolio, we spun out a portfolio, we took it public, and that's where I am today. Today, I'm chairman and CEO of a public company called Invesc, which spun out of that business, and we own and operate healthcare-oriented real estate assets, nursing homes, assisted living facilities, memory care facilities, some medical office buildings. Um, so as you can see, it, it's been a kind of twist and turn journey from accounting to law to Wall Street to... Now, I guess healthcare oriented real estate, a lot of it is, is very much focused on the MA side, is focused on the, the finance side. That's really my, my core competency and my background. And I'm having the time of my life. Nice. Very cool. So, with the medical investment, uh, the health healthcare investment, um, are you developing the buildings and finding the doctors and people to come in? Or do they come to you and say, hey, we're looking for a new facility or is it a little of both? So we don't develop. We used to have partnerships with developers. Today, we acquire buildings um, and we own them. We operate some of them. So it's our employees that operate a, a sizable, you know, probably 40% or more of our portfolio, maybe 50% of our portfolio is operated by our employees, assisted living type assets. In some cases, we long-term lease them to operators of the facility. So not individual doctors, but uh, a, a company will operate a, a skilled nursing home, a memory care facility, and they'll lease it from us under a long-term triple net lease. Nice. And are these mainly up in the Northeast or you have... 
They're not. We're, in we're in 17 states and one Canadian province. We have 75 buildings around the U.S. Predominantly, I'd say on the eastern half, not the eastern seaboard, but the eastern half where we're in okay. Indiana and we're in Arkansas and we're in Texas and at least the eastern part of Texas. And then as you, you shift over, we have a sizable portfolio in Virginia and in Pennsylvania and a little bit in New York and and um I'm trying to think where else illinois so so it's the eastern half of the country but 17 states so a sizable footprint nice very cool and how long has invesc been around about six actually almost seven years will be said we went public uh seven years ago come this june nice very cool it's been a it's been a fun journey we grew very very quickly out of the gate so we went public um i guess in 2016 and for the first three years, we were the fastest growing public real estate company in North America, U.S. and Canada. We were growing very rapidly, uh, an aggressive M&A growth strategy by design. Um, then we had some setbacks primarily associated with COVID and, and that, you know, COVID was very challenging for uh, a nursing home oriented business, for an assisted mm. living type business. And, uh, you know, today we aren't acquiring as much and we're focusing more on repositioning repositioning meaning moving them to different the company. So, so the, company? the okay. company itself was the original investment thesis was a broad based healthcare oriented real estate with a diverse diverse streams of income and as i mentioned before we had skilled nursing which is traditional nursing homes assisted living memory care medical office buildings and we had dreams and aspirations of diversifying to other asset classes all in healthcare but more broadly as a result of the um, capital available to us and our ability to grow, we can't grow right now. So instead of being having our, our toes in a, a couple of different buckets, we're selling off, and we've publicly announced this, a lot of our skilled nursing assets and our medical office buildings, and we're repositioning the company to be predominantly private pay, seniors housing, memory care, assisted living. Very cool. Yeah, that seems to be a, a big area. And I'm I'm getting up to that age where I'm going to have to start thinking of you know some of these facilities. We I got know, plenty um, of time, Arlen. Plenty of time. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, living in Atlanta, down where we were in Atlanta, they had just built a brand new hospital, and as the hospital was going up, you could see all the other buildings coming in, all the other facilities coming in, and and multi-use uh, facilities and things like that. So yeah. That's a good area to be in. Good job. You know, we, we have an aging population that is yeah. utilizing healthcare-oriented services considerably more, and that's part of our play. Yeah. Very nice. So in your spare time, when you're not running marathons and stuff, when you're not running these multi-billion dollar companies and everything like that, you're a best-selling author, award-winning author, and motivational speaker, and you have a book. Tell me about your book. So the book is called The Life is Too Short Guy, Strategies to Make Every Day the Best Day Ever. This was a passion project that I embarked on early last year, early in 2022. It's something I've been wanting to do for years. And then finally, in early 2022, I said, you know what, it, it's time to, to chase this dream. And I spent most of the year writing the book. And the book is it's meant to be a practical guide to helping people live a better, happier life. You know, I'm a super high energy, happy, positive guy. I'm one of the happiest guys you're going to meet. And I, I, I find every glass completely full. There's no half full or half empty for me. They're all full with opportunities to grow. And that's just how I've, 
I've been for a long time. People have said to me over the years, it would be really great if we could bottle up some of your energy and positivity and share it with people. And I realized that the book is that vehicle, that 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 bottle, so to speak, for sharing it. So I created this book and this concept, and it's it's not an academic book. It is not a business book. The principles are are very applicable to business. And, and as I run my business, I bring a lot of these principles to the workplace, but it's not meant to be a, a business book. It's meant to be a practical, anyone could read this. A high school student could read this. A, a Somebody in their 90s could read this and everyone in between. It is is written in a simple, plain text. Here are 10 principles for living a happier, more fulfilling life. Here are stories to illustrate those principles. And it, it really takes the reader on an emotional journey to say, you know what? Life's too short. Why waste time doing things that, that you don't want to do? Why waste energy being down or negative? There's too much negativity in the world around us. And that was the goal of the book. And now, as you mentioned, I'm on a broad speaking tour. I have a, a speaking business where I've been doing a considerable amount of keynotes and workshops for companies, for conferences, inspiring people to, to step back and think, be positive, be excited, be energized, be focused, think about what's important. You go out, embrace it and make the most of today. Make today the best day ever and then go to sleep and wake up tomorrow and do it again. Totally. And the thing that I think people miss is that happiness is a choice, right? All your, all your, your emotions are a choice. You can choose to be happy. You can choose to be angry. You can choose to be sad. It's a, it's a choice. And if people can get that concept and realize, Hey, I don't have to feel down about this there. I can find some positive in everything that happens. And I'm kind of like you, I can, something happens and it's like, you know what, what did I learn from this? And how can I move forward with that new knowledge and, and be better? You know, that's, that's cool. I like that. that. But that's exactly gratefulness, right. you go into gratefulness too in the book, right? Great, grateful. So, so the choice element is the underlying principle. The very first principle is attitude is everything, the power of positivity. And it talks about the lens through which you view the world and gives people examples. And the idea is that you don't have to wait for that setback, for that kick in the head, for that uh, diagnosis, for that dealing with death or dealing with whatever those negative things we are. Don't wait for that. Today is your day to embrace and make the most of it. In terms of gratefulness, it 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 is very much similar to the positivity lens and and you know how you view the world. One of the tools I talk about in the in the book that's a very again, it's a very practical book. It's not a read a philosophy from an Ivy League professor and see how it applies to your life. It's a huh. I could do that kind of book. I mean, that's the idea. And one of the things I talk about is, uh, you know, I often say to people, what was your first thought when you woke up today? Do you remember what your first thought was, Harlan? No, no, I don't. Amazingly, most people answer me that way. So I tell people there are, there are three sets of glasses on your nightstand and the glasses you just put on, and I'll illustrate this. Here we go. The glasses you just put on, I call the blurry glasses. They, they you know, you, you're sort of opening your eyes and you're figuring out what the day is. And it's Tuesday or Wednesday, and it's, you know, I got some things to do today. Okay. So that that's sort of what I think most people do. Unfortunately, there is a sizable portion of people that put on the muddy glasses, the oh, it's Monday. I'm cold. It's dark. I'm tired. I have so much to do. I don't feel like getting out of bed. Then there are the people, and this is what I encourage people to do, and it's so easy. It's so easy, and people tell me they've done this over and over again since I've said this. 
Put on those bright, shiny glasses. Wake up and open your eyes and proactively say, it's Monday. It's a new week. It's a new beginning. I have a chance to talk to Harlan and his audience today. I am in bed next to the woman I love. My daughter is in the room next to us. I, I am the luckiest person in the world. There's a roof over my head. I'm going down to have breakfast. That's the first 10 seconds of my day. It's not that hard. And like Henry Ford said, and it's a quote that's used over and over again. If you think you can or you think you can't, you're probably right. Why put on those muddy or blurry glasses when it's so easy to just put on the crystal clear glass to say, today's the day. I'm grateful to be alive. Now, look, there'll be twists and turns throughout the day. There'll be setbacks. And for me to say waking up with that attitude is going to make your day perfect and amazing, no. But why wouldn't you set yourself on the right path to start the day? There's an easy tool to take away from the book to say, that's not that hard. I could do that. It's amazing to me how many people have come back to me to say they started doing that and it's really changed their perspective. Yeah, you, again, you have uh, the choice. You can wake up grumpy <laughs> or you can put on those glasses and get out there and face the world. Be deliberate, be thoughtful, and be proactive. Tomorrow is your chance to try this. Nice. I will do that. I'll make some notes on exactly how to do that. So you're a keynote speaker. Um, where where all have you spoken? Different businesses? So, yeah, I mean, I've been traveling. I did a, um, a real estate conference about two weeks ago out in Utah where I delivered a keynote. I've been speaking at businesses. Uh, so I give lunchtime talks. I've been doing workshops. I have a two-hour workshop where I bring a happiness handbook and people work through their own sort of happiness plan so they could walk out with something tangible. They write their name on it and they know this is Harlan's happiness handbook and here's the strategy for moving forward. Um, I've been traveling. I, I've been speaking in various parts of the country. I, I just sort of spoke to someone a few minutes ago that I'm going to talk to his company in Washington, D.C. And I'm heading out to, let's see, Austin in a couple of weeks to speak. And it, it is truly a passion project for me. I, I, when I look around and I say, what is the greatest impact you're going to have on the world? I think it's delivering this message. It's being able to look people in the eyes and tell them, you own this, you can do this, and walk out of the room feeling empowered, not walk out of the room trying to remember what this philosophy is or, or what statistic or empirical evidence proves this. Yeah, I throw some of that in, uh, you know, because I think it's important. But the basic context of the book and of the talks is these are easy tools. These are things you can walk away with and do. In fact, you almost could be critical and say, huh, like we actually hired somebody to tell us that. But that's the whole point is that when you walk out and you're like, it's so easy, I could do this. If everyone changes a tiny bit, think about the ripple effect across hundreds of millions of people in the US and in the globe. Everyone smiles a little bit more. Everyone talks to a stranger a little bit more. Everyone appreciates a moment a little bit more. Everyone thinks about how they use their minutes a little bit more. All these little things have a trickle effect that just makes the world a better place. I, I tell people I'm on a mission to make the world happier one smile at a time. If we each smiled one extra time throughout the day, think about what a better world we live in. That is awesome. Very cool. I had a guy on the podcast last year that uh, he basically, he started a, um, what did he call it? His rejection project. He was always, he had a fear of rejection. So it would keep him from doing things and trying things. He goes, doggone it. I'm just going to go out and I'm going to ask people. All they can say is no. And so he started asking people just all kinds of things, knowing full well, they would probably reject him. Somebody in, in a Starbucks, he asked, you want to get into a staring contest? And the person said, yeah, that's cool. And they just sat down and stared at each other until one of them blinked and they laughed and had a great conversation. That was it. He was walking in Los Angeles and walked down some uh, residential neighborhood and he saw up on this hill, the garage door was open and there was a ping pong 
table in there. So he walked up to the door, knocked and said, would somebody in here like to play ping pong? And they kind of looked at him weird and they said, okay. And they all went out and had a great time playing ping pong and just laughed. It's, we have choices. We have choices. And you don't have to live the way you're living. Choose to to live differently. That's perfect. I love it. Where did you find the courage? On the on the program, we talk about courage. Where do you find the courage to leave the, the safety net of the nine to five to create your own success? Where do you find the courage to overcome the setbacks, the divorce, the bankruptcy, illness, uh, failures? Writing a book can be a scary thing. A lot of people think, wow, where did you find the courage to do that, to put yourself out there like that? So where did you find your courage? Where did that come from? Well, I think there's a lot of bits of courage. Um, there's 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 uh, intellectual courage. There's the ability to uh, realize that I don't know what I'm doing. You know, a, a lot of people call it imposter syndrome, and and there is no doubt I face that through the book writing journey. And um, I, I am willing to acknowledge there's a lot I don't know. So I'm not the smartest guy in the room, and that's fine. I surround myself with smarter people that push me, that that help shape me, that give me guidance. I trust people. I empower people. You know, I don't uh, hire people to do as I say. I hire people to challenge me. So I think there's there's definitely um, a good amount of of intellectual courage. I think there is emotional courage in terms of realizing that not everything's going to work out. I will tell you. Early on, very early on in the book journey, I was concerned that it would be like I would just look like an idiot, right? I would I would truly look like an idiot in that. So one of the things I grappled with was I really wanted to talk about happiness, gratefulness, positivity, living in the moment, making the most of your life. However, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a I I'm grateful grateful. I haven't had a major life setback. So I can't say, you know, when I overcame whatever. I had setbacks. I, you know, in the book, I talk about the death of my parents. I talk about, you know, I was in New York City, five blocks or six blocks north of the World Trade Center on 9-11. I saw the planes hit the building. So I had setbacks. I haven't had it perfect, but I haven't overcome some major catastrophic. So, so I looked at that and I said, all right, well, look, you're the chairman CEO of a public company. You've built this public company. I'm, I'm also a partner in a, in a um, student housing development company. So maybe you should go down the path of writing a business book, right? Because you have a little credibility there and you've had some success, but you're not a a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I was like, you know what? I don't care because I'm passionate about making the world happier. And if people don't want to listen to me, that's fine. This is, is, is my podium. It's, it's my soapbox and I'm going to get up and I'm going to write it. And I'm so grateful I did, but it took courage. There's no doubt. It took uh, emotional courage to overcome the you don't know what you're doing. You don't know. No one's going to care. I remember saying, this is great. I'll write it, but no one's going to care. Well, you know what? Thousands of books later, people care. And I've had an opportunity to speak to a number of large audiences and that continues to grow. I've had the opportunity to be on many podcasts, including this one. I'm grateful, Harlan, that you invited me. I've been on probably 40 or 50 radio and TV shows over the last couple of months. So somebody cares, but I will tell you, it took a lot of courage to figure out, is anyone going to care? And then just set that goal and, and go for it. We're talking just about that earlier where um, I had one guy on the podcast that talked about, you know, asking him where he found his courage. He said, I had a, a dream. I had a vision of what I wanted. And I knew what it was going to take. I knew it was going to be hard. I knew it was going to suck, but that's what I wanted. And that gave him the courage to keep going. So good job. I think it takes a lot of confidence. I, I tell people, and I've even thought that maybe I'll write another book about confidence 
be confident in yourself. Don't worry about what the world thinks. And and yeah. it's it, that is a big message I like to perpetuate because when I thought about, well, what if no one reads the book? My answer was, I don't care. I'll read the book. That's fine. My wife will read the book. So I know there are two readers and that's fine. I'll do it for that. Um, and, and anyone that sort of questions whatever it is that you're trying to do, don't worry about what the world thinks. Worry about what's important to you. And I think that's a big source of courage for me. You know, people have said to me, um, you're very confident, you're very confident in it. And I, I don't love to use this word and I certainly do not consider myself this way, but, but I want people to border on the line of cockiness or arrogance. I say that with a little bit of timid, timid, timidly, I say that timidly because I really don't want to be branded that way. And, and I don't think I come across that way, but I think too often we look at ourselves, we look in the mirror and, and we, we start with why not? We start with, I can't do this because, I'm not going to do this because, it might fail because, I'm not sure because, stop. This is where I push people to that, that sort of arrogant kind of cockiness. Like, you know what? I could write a book. You know what? I can fill in your own blank, whatever that is. And what's the worst that happens if you can't? I set out to write this book. I never got it done. Okay, I invested some time. I write the book. No one bought it. Okay, I spent some time and money and resources. That's fine. I'll get over it. If people look at me, laugh, think it's it's ridiculous or whatever, I don't care. Life's too short for me to worry about what the world thinks. Absolutely. Yeah, we call that quitting before you get fired, right? It's like just giving up on something before you've even attempted. You know, talking That's yourself out of true. it. Yeah, it's true. Look, I, I think about some of the physical challenges we talked earlier about the marathons, the Ironmans that I've done early on. I was like, do I think I could do a marathon? Yes, I could do a marathon. In fact, I, I tell another story in the book about my first marathon where um, the context of the story, one of the things I talk about is random acts of kindness. And I think we, we as a society don't perform enough random acts of kindness. We don't appreciate how valuable they are. There's a study done recently that the recipient of a random act of kindness appreciates it considerably more than the giver believes they will. Think about how powerful that is. Anyway, my very first marathon, um, it was New York. I applied to it and you apply six or nine months in advance. I'd never run a marathon. You have to write down what your projected time is. I had no idea. I just wanted to finish this thing. So I was like, you know what? I, I looked up times and I'm like, I could probably do four hours. I write down four hours. I then go out and I start training and I start getting pretty serious about it. I, I hire a coach. I go all in and I'm starting to run some pretty quick times and I run a half marathon in 129. So now I'm like, oh, look at me. I'm the man. I could, I could do three hours. This is amazing. So I go to the to Jacob Javits to pick up my number a couple of days before the marathon. And I show up with a paper showing that I'd run a 129. And I need to start with the three-hour runners. I can't start with the four-hour runners. Here I am sort of being arrogant and cocky. Originally, I wasn't sure I could finish. Now I'm going to be a three-hour marathon runner. So I go to pick up my number. I say to the woman, I need to move corral, a three-hour corral. And she's like, son, I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. I'm going to run three hours. I, I need to move up to the three. I, sir, I, I'm sorry. There's really nothing I can do. So I look around. I'm like, well, ma'am, we're in Jacob Javits Center. I see thousands of people. I understand there's nothing you could do, but someone in this building can put me in the three-hour corral. Who is that? She's like, I don't know. That room over there is, is for the elite runners. You can go talk to them. So I go marching in with my paper ready to tell them how I have to move up. I start to tell the guy he could care less. He says, give me your bib. I give him my bib. He stamps it. He puts a sticker on it. And he's like, when you get there, this will give you access to the elite running clubs. And that group goes out sort of at the beginning. I'm like, look at me. So I line up. 
my first marathon, I am hundred yards at most, maybe even less behind the elite runners. The gun goes off and I go off like a rocket. I am all in full app, first marathon, 10K. I am feeling great. I'm going to break three hours. This is easy. I get to the halfway point and I could see and hear that old woman that was giving me the number saying something I could do laughing at me saying, I told you I was going to get you. By mile 20, I could barely feel my legs. I was in agony. And in mile 23, I fell down. I was in Central Park. I crashed to the ground. My calf muscle cramped up and was wrapped around the side of my leg. And I couldn't move. I was hysterical crying. And a, a gentleman came up behind me. I don't know his name. I don't know what he looks like. I've never seen him since. He tapped me on the back. You okay? I'm like, no, I'm not okay. I, I can't move. He's like, you're just cramped. We could do this. He came around the front of me. He lifted me up. I have now run 23 miles. I'm disgusting. Let's be clear. He lifts me up. He looks at me. He's like, you're just cramped. We're going to do this. And next to me, he ran and guided me and said, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. And I crossed the finish line. And I've since done 14 marathons. And I talk about that in the book as a random act of kindness. He changed the trajectory of my life, not letting me quit, not letting me sort of see the failure at mile 23. And we finished that. And, and I tell that story in the context of random acts of kindness. That is amazing. And there are all those, those uh, unsung heroes that just show up and do something and then disappear. You never see them. And they probably don't have any idea how they've impacted your life. That's awesome. And, and the important message is for your listeners and the readers is you could be that person. Like that today's person. your day. Today's your day to buy somebody a cup of coffee, to hold that door open, to, to pick up. You know, I talk a, another story in the book where I picked up some young couple's meal for dinner. I, I they, they didn't know who I was. I just, or I told the waitress, give me the the check and I paid for it. It takes so little to have that positive impact on other people, on the world around us, on society. So as you listen to this, you're driving home now, you're, you woke up, you're out on a run, wherever you listen to your podcast, or if you read the book, what can you do today to make somebody else's life better? Nice. Very cool. Good stuff. All right. Um, leadership. How many folks do you have working for you at Invesc? So um, at the corporate headquarters, we have about 20 employees, and then we own an operating company, which has about 2,500 employees. So in total, I have about a little over 2,500 employees. Nice. If I was to bump into any of these folks on the road and ask them what type of leader you are, what would they tell me? What kind of leader are you? So I'm a leader that is very much focused on building culture and building teams. I care a lot about our, our culture and our teams. I put our employees first. I make them feel like they contribute in a meaningful way. I talked before about um, intellectual courage and I am the first to say, I don't know. Somebody help me. I don't bluff it. I don't pretend I'm the smartest guy in the room. In fact, if I'm the smartest guy in the room, I'm hiring the wrong people. So I, I encourage people to challenge me. I encourage people to to have an independent work ethic and career. I don't like a micromanagement. I don't like a, a rule by fear. I hope that I'm perceived as a leader that empowers people, that pushes down decision-making authority. I make very, very, very few decisions. I don't know if I want my board to hear this, but um, you know, I recently did a, I, I, I believe a lot in constant improvement and constant training. And I, I recently did a leadership workshop where the overarching message, it was a, a professor and she wrote a book and it's a great book, but the overarching message is leaders make too many decisions. And 
she and the class were fascinated when I literally explained that I almost decide nothing. Do you decide, do you make major hiring decisions? Not really. Do you, do you work on the strategic plan? No, not really. I review it and I give feedback, but I empower the people around me to make decisions. There are few decisions that, that I believe are, are solely with me. And even those decisions, I encourage people to, to weigh in on. So I'm a leader that empowers people. I'm a leader that cares about people. I'm a leader that cares a lot about culture. I'm a leader that cares a lot about um, having people feel like they're contributing. Something I say all the time, and I mean, is there's no one really more important here. There's no one. Everyone serves a role. Everyone contributes, and we can't make it without everyone. I'm very, very proud to say that we've been recognized as one of the best places to work. Our, our corporate headquarters are based in Indiana, so each state has their own competitions. Um, four years in a row, we've only applied four years, and for four years in a row, we, we just found out we were again named to the one of the best places to work in Indiana. And I actually think if there was a national competition, I think we'd be one of the best places to work in the country because we really give our employees flexibility. We give them um, a belief that, that not just a belief, but, but they're really contributing. So I, you know, a lot of people talk about flexibility and work from home and all that as being important. I think that, that some of that's important, but I think the bigger, more important thing is giving people a purpose, giving people an mm -hmm. opportunity to contribute. Like it's great if you work from home and you're flexible, but you're just sort of turning a wheel all day and you can't figure out what that wheel is doing. And it's great. I could do it on my hours and I could do it in my house. But if you just keep turning the wheel, that, that's not contributing. It's empowering people to make decisions, to, to run their own businesses, to run their own careers. And that's the kind of leader I am. Excellent. That is awesome. I'll come work for you. <laughs> I hope so. I, I love that. That would be great. And I, I assume you um, bring in your book to help uh, with the culture and everything like that. Do you give copies of the book to people or do you go through the book and, and help teach them to make everyday so, best? So I've done a seminar for, for my company on the principles of the book. Um, and, and a lot of how I lead and a lot of what I do are principles related to the book. And even in the book, I give some specific examples. I, there are a couple of examples I can think about that come from the workplace. There was one experiment that I did last February, so February of 2022. On February 1st, I sent out an email to the company and I, I don't have it in front of me. You'll have to get the book to see it. But basically I wrote, it's, it's dark, it's cold, it's a miserable day. We're homeless because we didn't have an office at the time. We have a lot of big issues to overcome. I'm feeling... Um, I forget, neglected, I'm feeling hopeless. I don't remember exactly what I said, but it was a pretty, like the world's coming to an end and I hate being here. And I sent that email to the company. And then a few minutes later, I sent another email to the company. Today's the best day of my life. The sun is shining. We have an opportunity to move into a new office soon and rebrand and re-energize. I'm grateful for you to be a part of the team. I don't remember all the nuances. And what I said to people was, it was the exact same day. It was the exact same facts. And this was hard, by the way. This took a little bit of time. It was the exact same word count. Wow. So whatever that was, I can't remember, 240 words. And I had to play around with it a little bit. Same day, same facts, same font, same email, same word count, two entirely different perspectives. Which world do you live in? You choose. So there's a real example of a, where I took something to, to from the business world and put it in the book. There's another example where, you know, in, in the real estate, well, in every business, I shouldn't say just the real estate business, in every business, you have disputes, right? That's just the nature of business. And I was involved in a dispute with somebody and they sent me a very negative, I hate you, I want to kill you kind of email. And mm -hmm. I, I showed in the book 
an example of what would have been an appropriate response, not a not an, a, a horrible response, but sort of a, you know, I'm, I'm trained as a lawyer. So one of those legal, like, you know, I, I, I find your, your tone to be inappropriate and excessive. I hereby blah, 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 blah. And I never took that tech. I never sent that email. I sent a different email, which was, thank you so much for your email. I'm sorry for the delay. I appreciate your perspective. While I don't agree, I respect it. Um, let's get on the phone and talk about it. Oh, by the way, I see you move from wherever it was, New York to Dallas. My daughter just took an internship in Dallas. She'll be working there this summer. Hope all is well. Let's talk. We talked, that gentleman and I, the following week. And the first thing he asked me about was my daughter working in Dallas. And my point was, we often use this, this keyboard, right, as, as, as a weapon. We, we, we get an email, we're like, ah, I hate you too, and I hope you die, blah, blah, blah. Why can't you just immediately take a pause, take a deep breath, respond in a, whoever's on the other side of the receiving end is a human being, and, and maybe they're an angry and, and, and negative person, and I hope to change that perspective, but respond as a human, give them respect, give them a chance to vent, and, and try to spin it in a, in a positive direction. That's what I did with the example of my daughter. So that's where I brought the business into the book, and I bring the book concepts into the business world. I, everything is connected. You know, what everything I mean? is Working connected. with my clients, if, if they're a poor communicator in their business, they're probably a poor communicator at home. If they yes. have trouble making relationships with their employees or customers, clients, they're probably having problems at home. So yeah, everything is connected. It all, it all works. No, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, especially as the world has evolved, right? And, and we are working more remotely or we are working in different environments. And, and look, that's been my philosophy for many years. So I run a public company in corporate headquarters are based in Indiana. I live in another state. So I've been doing the work from home thing for eight years. This isn't new to me. Actually, 10 years. This isn't new to me. Um, and I've given flexibility to all the people on my team to, to work for whenever, wherever. So to your point, the blend of work and, and, and personal family, and some people look at that as a negative. I actually don't. I actually say that that I enjoy what I do. I enjoy the people I work with. I create a culture that is fun and exciting. And people have the ability to say, you know what? Today, right now, it's two o'clock on Tuesday and I'm with my kids. That's fine. I don't need a sharp line of at five o'clock, I'm going to hop over to the family side and off the corporate bandwagon. You're an adult. You make your own decisions about how and when you work so long as you're contributing to the overall success of our company. And to the extent that that you can't work in that environment, then you're probably not right for us. And by the way, we've barely lost any employees over the years because it is the right environment for a lot of people. And, and the two worlds blend very much. Nice. Very cool. Scott, we could talk about this forever. I love this stuff. This is awesome. What's next for you? You've already accomplished so much. You've got uh, speaking gigs. You probably have another marathon or two coming up. What else is on going on? You know, there's so many more things that I want to do. We could spend another hour just on, on some of the things I mentioned before. I'd love to teach at some point in time. I'd love to mentor and coach young entrepreneurs. I'd love to join a couple of boards. I think I'm at the point in my career where I could add value a, a, to the boards. But right now, my real mission is spreading the message around this book. I mean, that 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 is my passion project. I really want to get out and speak. I want to, I want to get in front of companies. I want to get in front of organizations. I want to get in front of conferences and share this message. I want to see it resonate. I want to make the world a better place. I, I, 
you know, a lot of times people talk about their purpose in life. And, and I sort of pivoted that a little bit to passion. I like to refer to passion as opposed to purpose. This is my passion right now. I think I can contribute in a meaningful way to the world by spreading this message. So there are many more things. There, there are businesses I want to start. There are things I want to do. But right now is, is we're in kind of the spring of 2023. I want to spread this message. So anyone listening to this that's looking for a motivational speaker, that's looking to be happier, that's looking to spread this message, please reach out to me. I'd love to talk to you about opportunities to, to do workshops and keynotes in your organization, your company, or your conference. Excellent. And that brings up the next question. If people want to follow you, they want to get in touch with you, invite you to speak at their company. How can they do that? What's your website? So the easiest way to find me is at lifeistoshortguy.com. Lifeistoshortguy.com. It's simple. It's easy to remember. It ties to the book. Um, that's the easiest way to find me. You can find my email and contact details there. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and on other social media, but the website life is too short guy.com is the easiest. Okay. Very cool. I will make sure those links are in the show notes. So people know yeah. how to get in touch with you. And Scott, thanks again for taking time out to talk with us. It's been awesome. Wonderful. It was a really a lot of fun. Thank you, Harlan. Yeah, definitely. All right. Listeners, hope you guys are taking a lot of, a lot of good notes, a lot of good information here. Definitely check out the book. The life is too short guy right? The life is too short, guys. Strategies to make every day the best day ever. Check out the book. I will have links in the show notes. Share this episode with your family, friends, colleagues, and subscribe to make sure you know when next episode drops and uh, stick around because there's always more coming. That's it for me, Coach Harlan saying so long for now. 